I'm Justin Noda. And I'm Kyle Green. And you're listening to Mortgages, eh? A show designed to educate industry professionals and satiate the mortgage nerds. Underwriting, investing, getting the deals done while having a few laughs along the way. Morning, bud. Morning, bud. What are we talking about today? Down payment. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <sighs> Sorry, guys. Sorry. And girls. <laughs> Down payment is the bane, I think, of every broker's existence who has to rifle through all those documents and talk to their clients about why they need them, how many they need them, and of course, tell them what they did wrong and what they did means they have to provide even more paperwork. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So to start off, I kind of wanted to go through... Actually, you know what? I wanted to touch base on one thing before. I am relatively new to Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, how long have you lived in Vancouver for? Um, I mean, I've lived in the greater Vancouver area since I was seven. And where were you before that? Just out of curiosity. Oh, yeah. So I was born in Maple Ridge. My dad was a um, in the military. So we actually lived in what used to be called the Queen Charlotte, which is now called um, Haida Gwaii. Um, so... Uh, lived in a, a city called Masset. My dad used to uh, to flap to a place called Alert, which was really close to the North Pole. Uh, I think the most northern, like, habitable area of of the world. Cool. Then we moved to Ottawa. Moved to Maryland, like Baltimore. Okay. In uh, in the states for a couple of years, and then we moved back. So yeah, moved around a lot when I was younger, and then we kind of sed- settled down and. As a poker boy growing up. Yeah, so that's yeah. where I live right <laughs> yeah. now. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> same hood, same yeah, hood. Exactly yeah, yeah. right. So w- when I came to Vancouver, um, I'm from Calgary, um, and then went to Salmon Arm and lived in Salmon Arm in the interior for two, for 10 years, not for two years. And then when I moved here, of course, everyone says that Vancouver has a reputation for being unfriendly. Oh. It's supposed to be one of the hardest places to make friends in the world, mm-hmm. is what it said. And of course, you look at all the Facebook groups and whatnot, um, like Faces of Vancouver, for example, is something that I'm that I'm a part of, that I watch. And that's one of the things that keeps coming up. So what I like, and anyone who knows me, of course, knows that I like to try to be positive. I like mm-hmm. to try to give compliments and build people up. I think it's important. But? No, no, no but. This isn't a okay. but. This is, a, this is an example. Yeah. So I just wanted to, to give an example of what happened this morning just because it kind of caught me off guard and kind of made me smile. Okay. So I was walking as usual to get my morning Timmy's tea. Yep. Um, and when I was coming back, there was an elderly gentleman, maybe 65, 70, 75 years old, and he was all decked out. He had his, you know, his nice trench coat. He had his fedora hat. He had a cane, Sweet. a tie with a vest, right? He looked really oh, sharp. And he was walking hunched over with his eyes on the ground. And when we passed each other, he looked up and I commented and I said, I love your outfit. Yeah. Right? And instantly, he stood up straight. Huh. He stood up straight. His chest went out. Right. And he started walking with just that little touch bit more swagger. Oh, that's awesome. Right. And it made, it filled me up. Right. And yeah. I know he was feeling good about it. And I just wanted to bring that up because I think the positive change that people can bring with just a simple comment mm-hmm. or a simple compliment, um, a simple, you know, I see what you're doing or I appreciate you for this. Yep. Um, I think it's something that's underplayed in today's world. Um, and I think it's going to take, you know, a bunch of those little steps in order to make a bigger impression, not only for Vancouver, because obviously I'm not going to change all of Vancouver, but 
I changed that one guy's day coming home from Timmy's, which made me smile and I wanted to share. And it changed your day. It did. Now it's changing a bunch of our listeners. I hope, I hope it does. So <laughs> reach out, compliment everyone. If you yep. see that someone's making an effort to something, right? Whether it's an extra you know, effort towards their job or you know, maybe they've made an extra effort changing their look or trying out a new outfit or whatever, right? Yep. Compliment on it. Let them know you noticed as well because uh, sometimes that's all it takes. Exactly. Yeah. I love it. So now that we're done the positivity side. <laughs> let's deep dive into hell. <laughs> let's, let's dive into down payment. So down payment, let's start off with what it is. Yep. Right? Down payment is the amount of money that you're putting into the purchase. So you're coming to you know 5%, 10% um, or an actual dollar sign value, 100, 200, $300,000. You're bringing that money into the purchase in order to lower your loan to value and make it you know either... Um, more easily digestible from the lenders or the insurers or so that your TDS, GDS lines up. The one thing that I always found funny is at the very beginning of my career, I never understood or couldn't wrap my head around the down payment for a transfer. Oh, I, <laughs> I couldn't get it for yeah. the light. It was one of those things that never clicked, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone said, it's existing equity. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, I don't get it. So when I'm punching in the new application, every time the poor girl, her name was Sarah and Kelly, my wife, um, were the ones that trained me. And man, they were so sick of me asking that question <laughs> by the end of it, just because I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around it. Um, so yeah, so down payment, obviously for a purchase is the amount of dollars you're bringing in for a refinance or for a transfer. It's going to be that existing equity that's currently available inside the property. Right. Um, So why would we be talking about down payment and when should we talk about it? Um, In my experience, we should talk about down payment at the same time we talk about income, right? Mm -hmm. Right at the start. Uh, Just like in income, people can be misinformed. Um, People can bend the truth, right? You you don't want to underwrite a file when someone says they make 100 grand when it turns out they make 50 because all your numbers are going to be wrong. Um, Same thing goes for down payment, right? You want to make sure you have that conversation ahead of time and figure out how much they have, how much you want to put down, and where those funds are coming from, I think are the three kind of keys that we wanted to look into. So how much do you have? I think that's the biggest question that people are going to ask. Um, And of course, that has a direct reflection on how much they can purchase. Um, With an insured mortgage, obviously 20% down or less, and you're going to end up with an insured mortgage, 20% down or more, and you're going to end up with um, a conventional mortgage. Mm -hmm. How much do you want to put down, I think, is a big question as well, just because depending on when the client is talking to you and depending on what stage of their process they're at, it can change drastically, right? They can come in with, you know, $100,000 in the bank account, um, but they actually want to put $200,000 down, right? Mm -hmm. So your conversation that you have with the client is going to be much different with this compared to that. Um, So again, making sure that those questions are being asked right up front. Do you guys on your team, do you guys collect down payment documents right up front? Oh, yeah. You, you you have to. Right from the start? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, back earlier in my career, I probably didn't do that as much. But I found that it's, it just ends up, enough deals end up becoming nightmares because you didn't ask the question. And one of the things I, I make sure that I do um, right away too is, you know, in our, depending on what you call it, discovery call or, or intake, we call it an intake call. You're going over income, as you said, but you're also going over down payment. I ask, you know, okay, so how much money do you have available for down payment? And they give you a number. And then I always ask, okay, so where is that coming from? What's the source of the money? Yeah. Uh, especially a lot of our investor clients are like, <laughs> yeah, it's a joint venture with the other person's not coming on the title. And they're going to, my neighbor Joe's going to give me the money and put it, you know, into my bank account and <laughs> stuff, right? It happens all the time. <laughs> Even just yesterday, I was talking to a client who, 
has some interesting investment thing with his sister. And so some of his money is in his sister's bank account. And so we're asking the question about, you know, where's your down payment coming from? He's like, oh, I've got this much money in TFSAs, RSPs. I'm like, okay, but you said you have this much money for down payment. It's like, oh yeah, well, I've got this much money and it's in my sister's bank account. And it's just <laughs> like, okay, well, you're going to need to move that money into your bank account as soon as possible because it probably will need to season in your bank account for 90 days. Yeah. You know, so... Yeah, I think you need to ask the question right away because also sometimes it can take a client a month or two to get the documents in and they don't do it to get the pre-approval. They get busy and then they don't do it. And all of a sudden they're like, okay, yeah, I'm sorry I haven't gotten you the documents yet, but I've got a house now. I've written an offer. Okay, get me the documents. And like, oh man, like if only I'd known that you were moving your money around or, or whatever at the beginning, then we could have quelched this. And so you should ask the question right away. Yeah, and we'll get into that moving money around question. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> when we start, and that's probably one of the biggest things that gets brought up when our agents come up and ask us to help them with the down payment, um, especially new agents, right? Mm-hmm. They all see, you know, that someone has 100 grand in their bank account and don't really know how to dissect the actual transactions. Um, so I think that's a big key component in this is being able to look at a bank statement, investment statement, whatever it might be, and to determine what the lender underwriter is going to ask for um, mm-hmm. and what they're going to need explanations on. And even, again, I'm going to push submission notes because that's what I do. Having those included in your submission notes and breaking it all down for them is a much better way than just firing it in and telling the lender underwriter to figure it out. Yep. And I think the um, one of the things we have in our process too is when we're requesting and getting documents in from the client, we always make sure that we we have a note in there in our templated emails that says, please do not move money around. You know, and you try to explain that, especially if you notice in the documents that they have been moving money around. It's like, okay, stop, yeah. <laughs> please, <laughs> right now. I know that the other bank just gave a you know point two percent higher on a savings account, and you're moving the money back and forth. But please, just it it creates a lot of extra work and effort on everybody's part if you move the money around. So please stop. Yeah, I agree. The helping, right? They all yep. want to help, and they're all usually good intentioned. Yep. Um, but. You're not helping. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just, just leave it alone. Because um, yeah, either way, again, we'll get into what's what's needed as far as documentation for specific document scenarios. Um, but one of the other things that I wanted to bring up is the fact that asking all these questions ahead of time, figuring out how much the client wants, how much the client needs to put down is going to open up an access for more communications that might actually allow them to qualify for more more of a mortgage. Mm -hmm. Because I'll give you an example. If someone has, again, I'll use $100,000 because it's a nice round number. Mm -hmm. Someone has $100,000 in their bank account and that's what they want to put as the down payment. But they have a $25,000 car loan Mm -hmm. that is $800 a month, right? By knowing what they have and seeing what they have in their credit, they might be better off paying off that $25,000 car and downgrading their down payment amount to Mm $75,000, right? That might, taking that $800 a month liability off might actually allow them to qualify for a higher mortgage amount um, than if they left it and just plopped down that full hundred. Um, So again, it's conversations that you need to have. It's conversations you need to know how to have. And then once you have all the information compiled, it's knowing kind of how to play inside Phylogics or Velocity or whatever your submission platform is to be able to provide them with, you know, the correct pre-qualification numbers um, so that they can go it accurately. And not to mention, when you actually see the documents at the pre-approval stage, maybe out of the $100,000, maybe twenty five grand was just deposited yesterday from their sister. For sure right? it was. And it's like, 
okay, I can use that for debt payout, but I can't use that for down payment. There you go. Right? And so being able to see the documentation and be able to map that out and plan it out is is really, really important. Yeah, no, for sure it is. So as far as down payment sources go, there are a few ones that that come up right away. I'm sure there's a million of them that are out there or, you know, weird scenarios that have come across. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, <but laughs> for the most part though, right? We're going to see own sources yep. is a big one. Investments, gifts, and sale equity. Yep. Um, kind of those are kind of the big four that I've come up with at least. Can you think of any other ones right off the hop? Refinancing as well. Sometimes go. refinancing is another opportunity. We do that a lot with investors in particular is coming up with equity out of other homes, okay. other, pro- other properties. But yeah, th- this is the majority of it. You're going to come up with some random sources like selling a car or selling an asset sometimes uh, can be another source or an inheritance could be another source as well. But uh, but you're, you're not going to deal with those nearly as much as you're going to deal with, you know, in selling investments, own cash resources, gifts, and selling a property. So what happens, before we get into the normal, I kind of want to pick on the weird for a second. Oh, God. What yeah. happens when you sell a car? Because I've I've been involved in that same kind of thing where the lenders are all bristly about it. Oh, yeah. Right? They don't want nothing to do with it. You can't use that money. You know, but sometimes, you know, you're selling. I had a guy who sold an Austin Martin and it was like $120,000. And that was where his whole down payment was coming from. Wow. Um, And of course, the realtor sent him in subject free. Um, uh, So you had to learn to navigate. (laughs) So what do you use? What do you use for for that type of sell off? With with any interesting source of down payment. So this is true for if a client receives like an employment bonus. Um, or if they receive any large uh, deposit into the bank account, if they're self-employed and there's large amounts going into the bank account, what you generally need to do is you need to be able to provide additional proof or verification of the, the source of the funds. And so selling a car, for instance, usually the bill of sale is the way that you prove that. Okay. So you get uh, the you get the bill of sale. Maybe you even still have the listing that you put up the Austin Martin for uh, for sale. Uh, you can say here here's the uh, Craigslist ad or the Facebook ad, and then here's the bill of sale, and then here's the deposit that matches the bill of sale. Now, sometimes people get a little funky on the bill of sale because <laughs> they're trying to save the person on uh, on taxes, yeah. right? And then it doesn't match up, and so then you have another issue or another problem where it doesn't quite match up, and you have to explain why, and that it usually makes it a bit tougher. If it's a um, an income source, then if it was a bonus, then you usually need to just pull up your pay stub, and then the pay stub shows that that money was was a bonus that they received. And if it was a self employed individual, then often you do end up if you're using money from a operating business account and there's large deposits going in there, you often need to get the corresponding invoices or something else that shows some kind of uh, deposit remittance that verifies that. Okay, so for for a checking or savings account, then. Um, again, if you've uh, accumulated your money over a set period of time, um, maybe you you know saved up your work income, or you know maybe you sold a car mm-hmm. a year ago, right? And that's into your bank account for for documentation that most lenders need. And again, it's going to be lender dependent because they're all a little bit different. Um, there's some lenders out there that will require 30 days history, yep, and some lenders out there that require 90 days history the differentiating factors in there is the deal insured is the Mm -hmm. deal conventional who the lender is right there's a whole bunch of different factors that are going to come into play but the thing that is the commonality is that they need to see that that money has been in the account for a certain amount of time and wasn't freshly deposited yeah right and the reason being is that they need to know how that money was accumulated right they want to make sure that the money wasn't 
ill-gotten gains. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they want to make sure that it wasn't under the mattress yesterday and now it was, you know, deposited into your account because um, who knows where the mattress money comes from. Yeah. Right. And we all, I'm sure we all have. Do you, do you have any mattress money? A bit. Down payment stories? Uh, uh, oh, down no. Payment. <laughs> 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 you heard it here, guys. Uh, Kyle Green's got some mattress money. Mattress just, money. A little bit. Just, <laughs> a little bit. You know, not a lot. I love it. I'm not waiting for the apocalypse. Be like, aha, my bars of gold will come in handy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had I had a guy who, for a down payment um, confirmation once, he had saved 30000 yep. um, and didn't trust the banks. Uh-huh. So he sent me a picture of $30,000 cash in a box, like a tin box, like a tin cracker oh, box kind of thing that he kept in. Cracker box, eh? It, 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 was, <laughs> it was like a cracker tin. <laughs> and that's what he wanted to use for the down payment. So, of course, we can't use that. Yeah. As much as I wanted to send that to the lender underwriter just to brighten their day yeah, as well. Because yeah. believe it or not, they have wonderful sense of humor for the most part. And they've seen twice as many horror stories as course, we all yeah. have. Yeah. So what would we have to do on that front? So if we had someone who did approach us and say, hey, look what I got, 30 grand. I would like to use this for a down payment. Really, the only way to mitigate that is to have him deposit, or him or her, deposit that into their bank account. Yep. And then wait for however many number of days in order for the lender to be satisfied that those funds were in there and from a legitimate source. Yep. Now, <laughs> whether or not you can say they're from a legitimate source is probably a different story. Yeah, that's a trickier one, right? Um, one of the things that, you know, it used to be a lot easier to um, to verify down payment, but the lenders are asking for uh, this to make sense too. And maybe if if the individual's been in the workforce for 10 or 15 years and making what appears to be a surplus income and they've got 30 grand, that makes sense. But if they're 19 years old, driving a nice expensive car with spinners, <laughs> <laughs> you've deposited 30 grand in the last couple of months. Hmm, yeah. right? So I think it really depends on the situation. It's very circumstantial. But yeah, you, you, you're going to have a tough time dealing and being able to use those funds as legitimate funds for sure. Yeah. So this is kind of, again, this is where like a KYC, which is know your client, um, is going to come into play. Um, so again, anyone who doesn't know, and because I'm a compliance nerd, everyone that, nerd. that fin, fin track <laughs> is coming down, um, it's going to start getting enforced in a higher degree, I suppose, um, come October 2024. And one of the conditions surrounding that requirement is an increased KYC. So know your clients. There's also the MBRCC, which is the Mortgage Broker Regulator Council of Canada, has come down with a mortgage suitability test yep. or assessment form, right? Which is going to have to be accompanied every file. And that is literally the broker asking the client questions to understand their certain situation better. And no doubt that inside that conversation, whether it's the KYC or the product or assessment test, is going to be a disclosure of where that down payment come from. Yep. So it's going to be kind of up to the broker, again, to use their spidey senses to see what's going on, do a little bit of digging, and most importantly, ask the questions to better Know your client. Know your client. Right? KYC. It's, it's important, yeah. right? And it's not new, but it's something that's being enforced now more than it has been in the past. Um, so it's just something that we all kind of have to get used to. But it's, you know, to keep us safe, it's to keep the client safe, and it's hopefully to keep down payment and whatnot as far as anti-money laundering, because we all know that there's an issue, and lots of the times it's laundered through the down payment funds. Big time. Yeah. Right? So taking your your spidey senses and approaching any type of transaction, I think is is an important swing. Yep. Especially when you're talking about down payment and potential, you know, income fraud. Yep. Um, so let's go over what the documents are needed. So again, right for 
money that's been into the bank account through you guys earning it or the client earning it, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days history. The problem, and this is what Kyle and I were alluding to, is when clients start moving money around because they're trying to help and put Mm -hmm. everything into one bank account because that's the account that they're going to want to use for the down payment to actually give it to the lawyer, right? And meanwhile, they have it in five other accounts and now they're combining it into one. So what you'd have to do is you have to follow the money. You have to track it, right? You have to be able to say, okay, he moved $5,000 from this account to this account. Now you need three months, two months, one month bank statements for both of those accounts. Yep. So you can see that that snowballs quite oh, quite quickly yeah. into a whole thick stack of documents unless you have that dream client that has one bank account, right? And it's it's been in there for four months or five months or six months, whatever it is. Where are those dream clients, um, by the way? Yeah. Everyone, everybody's got a hundred yeah. different bank accounts that they're yeah. all pulling together to get that, you know, that down payment that they need for the home. Yep. Um, so I think that is probably where lots of the frustration comes from from lenders and from underwriters and from brokers for that matter, just because it's it's a little bit of a, a struggle to try and track. Oh, yeah. um, and it's really personal, right? It's a really personal thing to ask clients about, right? How much money do you have? Where did this money come from? Prove to me that you're not lying. And it's funny too, because it's always the clients like, oh, I really don't want to send my bank account statements. I, you know, I, that's really personal. I'm like, what's on them? And then, <laughs> and I'm more inclined to be just like, I'm just going to check out the bank statements. I'm really curious, you know, it's like, oh, dude, it, you just spend too much at McDonald's. It's all good, you know? And occasionally you see some like, that's interesting. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> okay, now I know why, <laughs> but yeah. whatever. Bank doesn't really care if you send, spend your money on that kind of stuff too much, but... Yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty funny. People don't like to send that over a lot. So when you're in your process and there, say you do a pre-qualification, and as you said, you collect income and down payment documents up front, we'll say that pre-approval lapses, and now you're looking to get them a new pre-approval. Yep. Do you ask for new down payment documents again? Um, good question. So I think it depends at this stage, if we're re-pre-approving them, then sometimes a verbal is okay. Sometimes. Uh, of course, you want to say, yeah, send us everything. But a lot of the time, there is some pushback. The client's like, why are you sent this over to you? I would usually say that it it depends. Uh, if the client had all the money sitting in one account last time, you just ask the question, is the money still there? Yes. Okay. I don't think I'm going to need to ask for this again, especially if you're not sure if they're really active. You know, if, if they're telling you, yeah, I'm looking around. I'm just really waiting for a deal. I think the, I think the market's going to drop 20% here and I'm going to scoop in and swoop in and, and grab something at that point. Okay, maybe maybe you don't get them to send all of the down payment documents all over again. But if somebody's moving it around and you're worried and concerned about where the source is, then it's not a it's not a bad idea to be asking for it again, especially if they're getting more serious too. Like, hey, am I pre-approved? Approved? I'm viewing any place on the weekend. I think I might write an offer. Okay, well, get us everything. You know, yeah. let's take a look at it. Yeah, it's yeah. a good practice anyway. So yeah, yeah, gift. Gift is super common right now. It is. Right? The bank of mom and dad. I How mean, else do you buy were you going to say the same thing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's a common saying and it's a common thing, right? Whether it's gifted equity, um, whether it's, you know, just the fact that mom and dad bought their property 50 years ago for 11 raspberries and now they have, you know, a bunch of money that they're able to gift. Yeah. So for a gifted down payment, you're going to need two things for the most part. You need a gift letter and it is lender specific. So Scotia's gift letter is different than TD's. That's different than First Nationals. Um, so again, I'm going to pull out my napkin analogy that I sometimes bring up. Nice. Is do not write your gift letter on a napkin, right? <laughs> this is, it needs to actually be formal. There are certain pieces of information that need to be given and they're going to be phoned. 
right? Just the same as your employer is going to be phoned. The person that's giving that gift has to give their phone number and their contact information. And more than likely, that lender or underwriter is going to call to confirm that, yes, this is indeed a gift that we are giving for the purchase of this property. And most importantly, that it's not going to be required to be paid back. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, of course, to go with that, you need the matching payslip, or not the payslip, the matching bank statement yep. um, to show that that gift has been deposited and that it is ready to be accessed. Um, and the ready to be accessed is something that has come up in the past because sometimes there's a hold, right? If they're, you know, if mom gives the gift today and the close is in five days, but the bank hold is for seven days, <laughs> right? It's going to come, it's going to be some problems. Yeah. Um, and there's going to have to be something that that gives. So again, right, when you're doing that, make sure that you know maybe which bank it's going to be deposited in and make sure that the client confirms if there will be a hold. And if there is, you know, make sure that you plan your times and your dates correctly. Yeah, and you also have to watch out if the gift is coming from parents that are out of the country. So, you know, if you notice, hmm, Spanish name, they can have a Spanish, the clients have a bit of a Spanish accent, for instance. You know, where where do mom and dad live? <laughs> oh, they they're, they live in Mexico. Okay. In that case, then you need to make sure that the money's in Canada 30 days prior. So actually, pretty much every lender wants down payment, if it's coming from out of country, to be in Canada 30 days prior to closing. Or else the AML guys get their panties all tied up in a knot and <laughs> you know, dig into that deal. It's it's a it's a nightmare and it's very difficult to get an exception on that one. They're very tight on it. So making sure that money is in Canada 30 days prior. And a lot of the time with larger gifts or if the money's coming in really tight to closing or if it's coming in from out of country, there may be also a requirement to show where the money came from uh, from the from the gift. Like the source, the source the, of the funds? The source initially from the parents. And uh, we actually had a deal recently. It was Mexico, Mexico, right? And of course, the gift money came from this interesting concept. I remember watching a Netflix show about this, and they talked about how um, this this group of people in Japan have this little pool of funds, right? And and everybody puts money into the the pot, and then when one of them needs it, then they just give the pot of money to the that person. So the gift money. From the no. parent in Mexico is coming from the pot. The pot? <laughs> not, the, not that I, I got you. Yeah, 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 exactly. Not, not <laughs> marijuana, but the money pot, the pot right? Of money. Yeah, pot of money, <laughs> not the money pot. Yeah. <laughs> so, of course, we're like, oh, crap. Now what do we do, right? And then we ended up saying, okay, client, how much do you have in your bank accounts? I'm like, oh, I have this much. I'm like, I need you to go through like every single account you've got. Our ESPs, like everything, go through it. And we had... We had enough money to like within five hundred dollars of the amount we needed to really? get away from the money pot, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we scraped all of it together. And we had to debt service two thousand and two hundred dollars on for closing costs on a credit card, wow. and then get the lender to make an exception to go to like forty nine TDS. Like oh my goodness. So yeah, ask where the money's coming from. Now this all came up really last minute because they ended up selling their home for way less than they expected. So they bought and then the market flipped and changed on them really quickly. And then all of a sudden they sold for significantly less. And so that was their ma- major issue. All of a sudden then we're like, oh my gosh, you sold for this much? Like we need more money. And like, oh yeah, no problem. My parents are going to give it to me. And the gift was coming in less than 30 days prior to closing from Mexico. Oh, yeah. It was from a money pot. So the lender's like, okay, we can maybe use it, but we need, <laughs> you know, to verify. It's from a money pot. <laughs> the village money pot, <laughs> you know? So, all right, well, uh, can we get around this? Yeah. So, so it's funny because sometimes 
we get little uh, a little tunnel visioned and we were getting tunnel vision. We're like, okay, we have to solve how we're going to be able to use the money pot. How do we get some verification of this and this? And, and sometimes it actually makes sense to just take a step back and say, can we get around this? Can we verify it in a different manner? And that's what we ended up doing and the deal got done and it got hairy. It got yeah. hairy. Yep. That's awesome. Yep. It kind of leads again to that initial conversation that you have with clients. And I see brokers, especially new brokers, do this all the time where they don't ask for or include a list of assets yep. right off the top, right? Because if you asked for and had that list of assets, you'd be able to say, maybe we need to take a step back. Let's look at what he's got. I wouldn't have to ask him any more questions. We've already asked him. And again, nine out of 10 times the lender underwriter, when you submit, is going to ask for it anyways. Right, so having yep. that full page, that full picture of information, um, is going to allow you to potentially save the deal and come up with some some options. If in fact your client has a money pot, <laughs> it's tough too because I, I remember having the conversation earlier with the client and asking how much money they can get from the gift and the initial number that the thought because I was trying to build in a bit of a cushion anyways in case they sold for less and the initial number was like they could get a gift for X amount and then. You know, once they remove subjects, they got a lower amount of a gift. And then the conversation was, well, I thought you were getting a larger gift. Well, we didn't need it. Okay, but now you need it. And of course, then we're getting money in within the 30-day window for closing. And then it was the money pot. It's just, yeah. So I'm sure that in hindsight, we probably could have been a bit more clear about, okay, if it's coming in from out of country, where is the source out of country? And and taking that extra step, I think, in hindsight. But I didn't think it was going to be a money pot, Justin. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard that either. Yeah. <laughs> so it's an interesting, it's an interesting journey of events for yeah. sure. Uh, one other thing, when money is coming in from out of country, um, sometimes the wire transfer mm-hmm. is required as well. I've had lenders that come back and ask for a gift letter, wire transfer, proof of deposit. Yep. Not all the time, not every time. And honestly, I can't say off the hop what makes them require that unless it's, you know, something inside how it was deposited or transferred from one to the other. Um, but the less clean it is, and you just tell the clients, just save all of the receipts for all the transactions. Yep. Just keep keep everything. I'm not sure what I'm going to need, but just keep everything. Nice. Because um, you've, yeah, you've had it before too, where oh, the parents didn't save the wire transfer document or piece of paper. Okay, get them to go back to the bank and get them to print that because yep. now we need it. Right? Yeah, exactly. Investments. Yeah. Investments. This is kind of Kyle's wheelhouse as well. So investments for down payments is a huge thing. Uh, pulling out from RSPs is going to allow you to take advantage of that, potentially, the first-time homebuyers program. But there's also other investments that people pull out from uh, that aren't a part of maybe RSPs or being able to use that. Um, what do you see as far as that goes? And what kind of documentation is is most required? Yeah. Some lenders just need to see the asset statements and you're good. Sometimes some lenders will say, okay, if that's the source, then we need to see that it's been liquidated and moved into the checking or savings account. So it depends on the lender. I find that lenders are asking for it more now on RRSPs. So they'll usually just use 70% of the RSPs because of the 30% withholding tax. However, some of the banks will actually say, I know you're telling me that your down payment is coming from the RSP, but we want to see that it actually has been removed and taken out of the RSP. And so sometimes you're going to have a client that tells you it's coming from RSP, but it's actually not you have to be careful that the money might actually physically have to leave the RSP based on the lender's guidelines. And you get a form. Yep. One of our cl- one of our agents actually just discussed that as well. Um, and the form is a T-1036. Wow, Justin. I, well, I, I blew it on that last one when you asked me what the T-slip was. And I said, <laughs> two? So I came in, two? <laughs> I came in prepared this time, my friend. Boy. <laughs> and that, that's, the, that's the form that the bank is going to give the client once they move forward or start the process of withdrawing that 
RSP money for the purpose of the first-time homebuyers program. As far as uh, sale equity goes, so again, that's kind of the the rounding of the big four. Um, Sale equity, so you're selling one house using the equity that you've got received from that, and you're using that as a down payment on on this future purchase. With that, you need your fully signed offer to purchase with all waivers and every piece of purchase or sale documentation that comes along with it. Besides that, what else do you see? Well, you need to have the mortgage statement so you can show how much pr- um, proposed equity there is in the property. Yep. Uh, so that's an important uh, important feature there. The sale agreement, and you kind of mentioned uh, mentioned this or touched on it, but it does need to be firm. And and of course, if it's not a firm contract, then the lender's going to say, well, send it back when it's actually firm. Yep. Which includes if you need bridge financing or anything like that, it has to be a firm, firm sale. And then I have been finding that a lot of lenders have been asking for uh, the statement of adjustments or statement of disbursements from the lawyer's office. Yeah. So they'll often still allow, especially if it's like a very quick, uh, you know, closing between the sale and the purchase. They'll often instruct your deal, but then they'll still have a condition that they need to see the statement of adjustments or disbursements from the lawyer's office that's handling the sale, because maybe they or there's a huge IRD penalty that is being factored in that they didn't know about or wasn't wasn't aware of. And so they may be asking for that too. So you have to be aware of that fact. And uh, when you're calculating it out, you should be calculating what their estimated penalty is uh, to make sure that um, that there is enough money there. Yeah. You know, there's nothing worse than having a client go to the lawyer's office and say, uh, I don't think I have enough money for this. Yeah. <laughs> not I've, a good I've, time. I've had it too. Yeah. Right. Or the PTT talk. Yeah. Right. If they're not aware, right. It, it comes up to, Whose responsibility is it to tell the client about PTT if they don't know? Yeah, is I know. it the lawyer? Is it the broker? Is it the realtor? Right? Yeah. Is it the client's mom? Right? Who knows? I think it's everybody. So as far yeah. as I go, I disclose PTT right from the start in the pre-qualification. You know, it lists here's your PTT estimated PTT cost, lawyer fees, all that stuff. You know, estimated cost to close is seventy five hundred bucks. Yep. Right. At least then if they come back and said, you know what, you never told me about it, you can pull up all the resources that you sent them that, you know, I detailed it here, I detailed it here, I detailed it here. Um, but hopefully the realtor and the lawyer on the other side has been um, just as vocal about it as as you have. Right. Yep. Um, which will allow, you know, more disclosures, the better, and it's only going to cover your own butt. Yep, 100%. Yeah. So I had a funny story about about sale equity. Not so much funny, but interesting. So I had a... Was it funny? <laughs> it, 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 no. Um, so I I had a guy uh, who was looking to purchase a property. Uh, he had a $300,000 down payment being gifted to him um, mm-hmm. from his mom in Egypt. Okay. So of course, it's coming from, you know, yeah. over there. So the lenders have interests in figuring out if it's legit, if yeah, it is in yeah. fact an ill-gotten gain. Um, and it's supposedly from mom and dad's home sale. Okay. So we did that. We submitted the deal. We, you know, started working it. They asked for confirmation of that. The only thing that he was able to provide was he could give us an offer to purchase, but of course it was in the native language of Egypt. Right. Yeah. Um, so nobody could read it. So we said, well, you need to get that transcribed so we can read it. So he did it. In the meantime, so did the lender. Oh. The lender got it transcribed too. And they came back and they did not match. Uh oh. So it turns out that it was a, a, sale agreement that was didn't even have his parents' name on it. He was completely going off the fact that no one would understand what it was written as. Wow. It was a property that was not even sold. They just made it up. And of course, when I brought this to my attention, I was the asshole. Of course. I was the terrible broker oh, who couldn't yeah. get it done. Um, and he collapsed the deal immediately and I never heard from him again. 
I wonder what happened there. I don't know, yeah. but there was 300 grand in his bank account because we had a bank statement that showed a deposit of $300,000 into that account. So we were just yeah. trying to match up and show where it's from. But man, once that flag got flown, right? There was no spidey senses. I got You yeah. got smacked right in the back of the head. Yeah, totally. Hey, yeah. wow, crazy. So, so I guess... He was trying to decipher the hieroglyphics differently than uh, than the bank was. I, I, yeah. I guess, yeah. He was trying to make it because he came back and said, you know, it was written off and it was mom's name and dad's name and their property and here it is and here it is. And meanwhile, when the bank came back, it was someone else's name and this Ooh. name wasn't it and yeah. the property was completely different and um, and nothing nothing matched, right? So again, it's that due diligence using whatever you have um, and partnering with your lenders, right? Partnering with your lender underwriter because you don't want your you don't want your name tarnished no, just as much as all. they don't want that shady mortgage on their books. 100%. Right? Yeah. So it's just a matter of knowing exactly kind of what to do and what to ask and when to ask it. And this was one of those cases. Yikes. So one of the last ones, um, and again, this is more of your specialty, is down payment coming from a HELOC. Oh, yeah, baby. Right. <laughs> My favorite. <laughs> yeah, you know it is. <laughs> yeah. So down payment coming from a HELOC is is very common. Yeah. Um, whether it's to purchase, you know, usually it's to purchase, obviously, a second property, because if you have a home equity line of credit, it's attached to a first property. So there are tax implications and whatnot that you should be aware of, but I don't know if we're touching on that. Um, well, I'm not touching on it. Kyle, are you going to touch on Just that? Just a little bit, maybe. Just a little bit. Just do you want bit. Do you want to take over for a second? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, the the and we talked a little, a little bit about this in a previous episode. We touched on it. We're going to have to have a whole episode dedicated to the Smith Maneuver. For because sure. That's it's yeah, it's its own topic. But whenever you borrow money to invest, the interest payments are tax deductible. And so that's an important uh, thing to look at. Again, it has to be borrowing money to invest. So it's, it's not about what property it's secured by. It's actually the purpose and the intention of the funds. Um, so you can borrow money from your residence, use it for down payment on a rental. It's tax deductible. You can borrow money from a rental, use it for the purchase of a residence, not tax deductible. So that's an important key or distinction. If you ever get audited by the CRA, you have to show the paper trail of where the money went and what the use of those funds was for. So it's it's common for people to use the uh, line of credit. One of the things that I've, uh, I've I've found is that some lenders use a balance and some lenders use the limit on the line of credit. Yeah. And so a little trick sometimes is a lender that uses the whole line of credit limit anyways, if you can't get the debt servicing to work, because maybe you're using a hundred grand for the um, from the line of credit for down payment, but they have a two hundred thousand dollar limit. Well, maybe just try to to increase the down payment to two hundred grand, because the lender's assuming the borrower is taking all of that money anyways on the existing line of credit. So maybe you just bump up the down payment uh, to two hundred thousand on the on the purchase. Now maybe that does work. So just a little little trick to look at there. Another uh, little trick that we also look at too is. Maybe your borrower has a bunch of equity in an existing home and they want to buy a new property and they only have 10 or 15% down payment, but they have equity in an existing home. And so I actually was looking through some numbers and talking with a client last night and they've got a home that's you know worth about 500 grand. They only owe 240 on it and they want to buy a new property uh, just under a million dollars. So you could do it insured, um, but they have 15% down and it's like, ooh, you're so close. And if we can just shift that from being an insured deal where we're tied down to 39-44 GDS-TDS ratios, tied down to a 25-year amortization, tied down to the insurer guidelines, if we can get that extra 5%, you're still borrowing the same amount in either case. In fact, you're actually borrowing less because you don't have a CMHC insurance mm-hmm. premium getting tacked on, right? 
But now you get a 30-year M on the new mortgage and you get to use whatever stress test or uh, debt servicing ratios the lender's using. So you can maybe go up to 48% debt service instead, as an example. So um, that's a little little trick to use is to, to sometimes just leverage existing properties and pull up money out of those. And of course, looking at, hey, maybe I can restructure it. As an example, I think when they bought that property, I think they did put less than 20% down when they first purchased it. And so I might even be able to redo that mortgage, reamortize it over 30 years again, lower the payments, even though I'm borrowing more money out of the existing home, then use that extra down payment to put on the, on the new purchase and hit the 20% down mark on that one too. So just a little, little thing to look at. Now, when you're borrowing money against a line of credit, or if the client has a line of credit, depending on whether it's a balance or limit, the lenders use different calculations on this. And it's really important to make sure you use the right calculation. It's kind of crazy because it can be based off of the balance or the limit. It can be based off of a 25-year or sometimes randomly a 30-year amortization. Or the occasional lender actually just uses an interest-only payment. It's very un- uncommon for that, but it can be can be used. And then the payment uh, or the rate used to calculate the payments also can be different. So some of them just use the mortgage qualifying rate or the uh, stress test rate of 5.25%. Some lenders use uh, the, the actual rate plus 0.5%, so whatever their actual rate is. Some lenders use the uh, line of credit rate uh, plus 2.5%. So they're factoring in a stress test on that. And so a lot of lenders will use five and a quarter, and some of them are using all the way up to 9.7% on the interest rate to factor in that line of credit payment, which makes a really big difference. That's a huge difference. It is, especially because like Scotia is using the lower rate and also using it on the balance. Yeah. And then TD on the flip side is using it on the limit. And in fact, what they do is if the line of if the mortgage that they already have is a readvanceable mortgage, so it's a RBC home line or a Scotia Step or or a TD flex line, uh, they actually use that calculation: twenty-five year M, nine point seven percent interest, which is the prime mm. plus two and a half on the entire amount that they have available. So even if they have a mortgage component for nine hundred thousand and a line of credit for a hundred thousand, you've got a debt service a million dollars. 25-year M, 9.7% rate. Wow. Yeah. And so it can kill a lot of deals that way. So you want to be really careful about that and make sure that you're using the right calculations. Actually, when we're, we are building Atlas, uh, our mortgage software that will help you know review and be able to more easily and quickly assign and, and underwrite a deal with one set of inputs for all of the lenders. When we were first building our first uh, version of this product, uh, in order to properly map it out, I think there is... 18 or 20 different potential variations for how a HELOC payment could be calculated. And so in order to, uh, to speed up that process, you know, building it all up, all of the different possibilities out, and then the system would just kind of point to the correct one based on which lender it is. Uh, but it's complicated. There's yeah. a lot of options. I haven't talked about how RBC uses the three-year posted for their rate. Um, <laughs> and I think Canadian Western Bank, and I'm, I'm, there's one other lender that does it too. I think it's CWB or somebody else uses the three-year posted rate for that calculation. So, yeah, just to make things nice and easy on you. (laughs) Make sure you check and see exactly what that lender's calculation is and make sure that when you're doing it, if it's not working with one lender, then maybe see if another lender um, uh, uses a lower payment, either especially the balance or the limits, the easy one first, but also just what's the actual payment on that balance or on that limit after you get to that point too. So for all the, the new brokers that are listening to this, if you do have a client that's using a home equity line of credit for the down payment, you do have to include some sort of debt servicing in the liabilities, yep. right? I've had that question before as well. Again, it's like my whole, 
I don't understand what a down payment on an, on a transfer is, right? Yeah. When someone new comes in and they have a hard time wrapping their head around something, um, right? If it's not just being given or money in hand, right? It's money coming off of a line of credit because it will negatively affect the amount that you qualify for. Um, because of course, if you have money that's just sitting in a bank account versus a money that you're actually going to be making a payment on, it's going to affect the amount of money that the, the lender is okay lending. Yep, exactly. Yeah. I wanted to touch base for the last thing on maybe a non-secured, because a home equity line of credit is a secured down payment source. Mm -hmm. So a non-secured down payment source. Um, I will give an example of a credit card. Yeah. Um, an unsecured line of credit. Yeah. Um, a gift from, uh, you know, it's not even not, not a gift because there's going to be a payback, but a loan from a third party. Mm -hmm. So on those type of things, again, you're going to have to debt service that amount. We will probably go into, I think we're going to do a full kind of a basic mortgage toolbox episode down the road yep. um, where we're going to really dive into, you know, GDS and liabilities and that kind of thing. Um, but for all non-secured sources, of course, if there's a loan that has terms, you're going to have to honor those terms inside the liabilities. But if it's a non-secured line of credit or if it's a credit card, then you're going to use 3% of that balance. Yep. Um, and again, add that. So if you've actually ran numbers on 100,000, uh, 3% versus 100,000 off of a home equity line of credit liability equation, you'll know one is much, much better than the other one. Um, so hunt those HELOCs and, and avoid those unsecured because it's going to greatly affect the amount of money that your client qualifies for. Big time. I mean, it, really, really quickly on that, with the current stress test interest rates right now, um, it's probably about $700 a month per 100 grand borrowed. To put that in perspective, borrowing $20,000 on a credit card at a 3% repayment is $600 a month. Wow. So, you know, 25 grand owing on unsecured debts will have a higher payment than borrowing 100 grand secured. Wow. And that's stress tested secured debt too. So often I, you know, the client will be like, but I only owe five grand on the car. Why would it change my, why do I have to pay it off? I, I have 0% interest on it or whatever. It comes down to the debt servicing and just being able to explain that in a simple way the client gets and understands, then like, oh, okay, I understand now. You yeah. know? So uh, I think that that's something that uh, you want to be able to understand and and be able to convey. I do want to talk about the uh, what you're talking about using unsecured debts because a lot of people, clients and brokers alike, don't know that you, with even with the insurers, with some lenders, you can do effectively zero down deals. Uh, you can borrow the down payment. And it's odd to me that you can borrow your down payment from a, a credit card. Yeah. But you can. <laughs> yeah, for sure you can. If you qualify underneath the flex down program, you have to be able to service that that debt. And so it really only fits a very small segment of the marketplace, which is high income earners that don't have cash. You know, you'd think that a high income earner should have cash, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's like, ah, you spend a little bit too much at um at Gucci, whatever, right? Probably but, I was gonna say Tim's, but that shows <laughs> Tim's? Come on. You'd have to buy a lot of Tim Timbits. <laughs> it's early morning and my mind yeah. is focused. I know, right? <laughs> I'm still thinking about that uh, fancy old man you saw. With, I love that yeah. guy. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting, but it is, it's harder to qualify underneath that program. The debt, the, um, uh, debt servicing gets stretched a little bit. Also, uh, sometimes you can do this to hit the 20% down mark too. So I've done that before where uh, as long as you have, and depending on the lender, a lot of the time they'll say, well, we need to see at least 10% coming from your own resources, but you can borrow the other 10% to hit the 20% down mark. And every once in a while, you'll realize that actually if we borrow you know, 5% down from a line of credit or credit card, it actually can help the debt servicing ratios because now you're in a 30-year M and now you have extended ratios. And maybe also you get to use a different income policy on something that you couldn't do insured. So yeah. uh, sometimes it can make sense to, uh, to tap into that too. 
Yeah. Ask your questions. Yep. Right. Make sure that you have a full outline of what's going on and what the possibilities are. And it's going to lead you either to an immediate solution or potential solutions down the road when something goes askew because something's going to go askew. Yeah, exactly. Well, that was awesome. I think we've touched base on lots of that. Um, So I know we usually get excited for back in the day, but it's down payment. So I'm not excited about it. Ah, back in the back day. Back in the day. Back in the day. So in back in the day, I just wanted to touch base on a couple of dates, a couple of interesting dates um, over the past, you know, 10, 15 years. So in November of 2006, CMHC announced mortgages with amortizations up to 40 years can be insured as well as zero down payment mortgages. This is for rentals and owner-occupied That's properties. Crazy. crazy. Zero day. down on rentals? Are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> who thought that was a good idea? I don't know, but there's some people out there that must have taken full advantage of that and are just laughing all the way oh, yeah. to the bank right now. Oh, yeah. And Kyle probably financed them. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> July 2008, finally, the 5% down minimum um, is required. And that has been that was established, like I said, July 2008. So finally, they said... No, no down payment, no good, mm-hmm. right? And put that five percent rule. Was the five percent down for rentals as well? Oh yeah, yeah. So it was five yeah. percent rentals, five percent owner occupied, and not until April of two thousand and ten did a twenty percent down payment get implemented for rental properties. Yeah. So that's, that's right. re- not relatively new. I guess that's thirteen years ago now. Um. So it's yeah. been <laughs> it's been a, it's been a time, eh? Uh, yeah. There was uh, there was a moment too somewhere around two thousand seven two thousand and eight where I believe the the minimum down payment for rentals went from twenty five percent down to twenty percent. So there actually was conventional rental properties went from twenty five to twenty, and that's because I think previous um, conventional mortgages used to be twenty five percent down instead of twenty percent down. So yeah. I think that's even back before our day. Justin. For sure, yeah, because in, in my career it was always twenty percent down. But I, I do remember rentals being 25% down for conventional. And then a number of lenders shifted and they were, you know, some were saying, okay, we can do it for 20% instead of 25. I think there's a moment where TD still needed 25% down to do a conventional rental property where some of the other lenders um, had moved to 20 already. But uh, yeah, I remember that shift happening for a little while. Yeah, I, I still have people that call. And usually it's a, the older segment that yeah. ask, right? Is it still 25% down? And then you're like, <laughs> no, it's 20%. And it's like, what? Yeah. Because they've been saving for 25%. So now they're laughing, right? They yeah. got 5% extra. Um, and that covers the closing costs. Like guy's <laughs> doing a jig all over the Tim Hortons. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And then finally, of course, in December 2023, the Mortgage is a podcast confirmed for everybody that down payment was 100% better in the past. 1,000% better, actually, is what you have listed here. And I couldn't agree more. Yeah, good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's all we need to do to talk about down payment today. So thanks for talking to me about mortgage down payments. Yeah, eh? (laughs) (laughs) Later, bud. Yep, later, bud. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to sit with us. Hopefully, you're able to take a couple things from today's episode, implement it into your everyday, and improve in the areas you need to. For direct interaction with us, please join the conversation through our Facebook community. Check the link in the show notes, and happy brokering. 